Hello and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. My name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute. It's Friday, January 26, and today I'm joined by my SSI colleagues, Nate Fryer and Chris Bolin. Both are research professors of National Security Studies at the SSI with me, and they're keen observers of American defense strategy and policy. With the recent release of the Trump administration's national defense strategy, exactly a week ago today, we thought it an ideal time to convene a roundtable discussion of sorts to discuss that new defense strategy. Nate, Chris, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. Looking forward to the discussion, John. Now, the National Defense Strategy, or NDS, of course, replaces what was known as the Quadrennial Defense Review, or QDR, report. And this latest version is, uh, at first glance, quite different from the QDR, uh, if only uh, in terms of its length, right? It's much, much shorter than the QDR. The last QDR released in 2013 was nearly 90 pages. This National Defense Strategy is only about 12 pages of unclassified material. And the Pentagon, though, has been quite clear that that this NDS, released last Friday, is really just a summary of the full report, which remains classified, and we can only presume is much, much longer. We're going to focus our discussion here, of course, only on the unclassified summary, that which has been released publicly, and try to glean what we can from it regarding the trajectory of defense strategy and policy under this uh, the new Trump administration, which has, of course, been in office now for exactly one year. So uh, let me start, gentlemen, by asking you, uh, Chris, I'll, I'll start with you, and then we'll go to Nate. What's new about this national defense strategy? Uh, you could answer that in comparison to uh, uh, to the previous QDR, but, uh, but I mean that question more broadly. What's new in terms of where you see this taking American defense strategy uh, in the coming years? Chris, what do you think? Sure. I mean, I, you know, think and broadly, there's a shared similarity in terms of the uh, strategic objectives and defense missions that are that are shared. There are like 10 to 11 identified. Uh, you can almost do a crosswalk and you can identify strong similarity between all of those, whether it's defending the homeland, uh, deterring adversaries or battling uh, terrorism and minimizing proliferation. Um, the key differences, I think, are two. One is it downgrades explicitly terrorism in terms of the national defense priorities, and it raises up battling and competing with Russia and China, so-called uh, strategic competitors, uh, to number one and number two priorities. So that was one big change. I think the other big change I'll just throw out on the table, I'm really interested in hearing Nate's perspective on these issues, is really just the tone. It emphasizes everything in terms of a strategic competition. The bumper sticker advertisement for the national defense strategy is uh, compete, deter, and win. So that's a big change from prior languages and uh, national defense strategies. Yeah, Chris, I think you, you've, you've hit the nail on the head here. I, the big change I think you're exactly right is this shift from focusing on terrorism solely uh, or maybe uh, um, among equals uh, and now 
degrading that in terms of its importance and the focus and increasing the importance of Russia and China and this strategic competition uh, that is that is playing out now. Nate, what's your sense? Do you see it the same way? Yeah, I pretty much I pretty much agree with everything Chris said. I think that um, what's fundamentally different about this compared to other strategies is that it it, it, it really basically puts a bullseye on the Chinese and the Russians. Um, and I think that uh, I mean, and I would also I would also add that it's probably a long time coming. Um, not unlike, frankly, it sort of reads in some respects. Uh, like a document you you might have read in the mid to latter 80s with respect to the Soviet Union. It doesn't necessarily put them in, you know, evil empire terms. Um, but what it does do is it it basically argues that there, there are there are defense and military pacers for the United States. And those defense and military pacers for the time being are going to be the Chinese and the Russians. Um, you know, the danger in it, to be perfectly honest, is since we don't we don't have you know the value of seeing the classified uh, aspect of the strategy uh, the strategy summary itself the danger is that they actually are misperceiving the nature of character of the Russian and the Chinese challenge. I mean, um, what 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 you, you have the you know we run a hazard or risk of actually uh, naming the Chinese and the Russians as the principal challenge to U.S. national security actually seeing the Russians and the Chinese in, in almost identical terms as we saw the Soviets in, say, 1987. I mean, the Chinese and the Russians are a much more comprehensive um, sort of multifunctional, multi-domain, multi-front challenge compared to the Soviets. And therefore, from a military perspective, I think the defense establishment has to be much more sophisticated and nuanced in the way they see these challenges. Let me ask you now, both of you, about... Uh before we get to a critique of it, let me ask you about what you think this strategy gets right. Uh, I'll note uh, for our listeners, if they haven't read it yet, the strategy lays out a strategic approach that's centered really upon uh, three parts. The first is to increase the readiness and lethality of the U.S. military. The second is to strengthen alliances and partnerships. And the third is to modernize the Department of Defense. Now, there are some details presented into uh, in the uh, the 12-page summary in terms of how those things will be carried out, how those lines of efforts will be enacted upon or acted upon. But uh, there's not a ton of detail here for us to really chew on. But given what is there, let me ask you what your sense is of, of what this strategy gets right in laying out the approach. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in broad terms, it actually de-emphasizing terrorism I think is actually the right thing to do. I mean, if you take a look at the threat of terrorists to American citizens and interests, it's really marginal. I mean, the prospect of an American being killed in a terrorist attack is still less than the prospect of getting struck by lightning. So statistically, that you know threat naturally building trillions of dollars of defense expenditures around what is really a manageable um, threat, I think is actually a good strategic move and it makes sense. Nate, what's your sense of, of whether that's the right approach, whether the strategy is, is heading in the right direction in, in, in this way? I mean, I think Crick makes, makes a good point that, you know, vis-a-vis, or I should say compared to China and Russia, the threat of terrorism is certainly not existential. I think too often in the U.S., certainly in Washington, we tend to 
uh, treat terrorism uh, as as the illness itself instead of maybe a symptom of a broader illness or a bigger problem or as a methodology employed by actors in an asymmetric way. And it seems like this strategy is beginning to recognize that. Do you think it gets it right in that, in that way? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the events of nine 11, 2001 were so, so, so horrific that it, it set off, national hyperventilation in the United States that did not, that has not yet subsided over 17 years. I mean, it's, it's, it, and you can understand it. I mean, from the, from the man on the street perspective, the degree to which 9-11 was such a foundational foundation shaking and disruptive event for the United States, you can understand how from a, from again, from sort of a, you know, um, sort of average Americans perspective that how can this possibly not be the number one priority for the United States defense department's homeland, its department of homeland security, et cetera. Having said that, I think that, that, that the strategy is exactly right. in sort of putting, putting terrorism in perspective. Um, I would actually argue, and I think Chris would probably agree with me. I mean, look, terrorism uh, in some way, shape or form has been on the U S national security agenda for you know the better part of 40 40 plus years um and so uh it 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 may have changed in scale scope and reach but it hasn't changed in in the degree to which it's still a a a part of the national security landscape i'd point out a couple of things though that that sort of strike me as things that the department of defense should keep in mind um when they look at their strategy and that when they look forward uh, to how to apply um, both concepts and resources against, you know, the, the adversaries, rivals, and challenges that they've identified. The first is, you know, readiness, right? They, they, that's, a, that, that's a common word used by defense and military officials, but, but there's, 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 the, there's the persistent question of ready for what. I think that um, from a service perspective, the ready for what um, – is 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 by by definition going to be biased towards what they want their core competency to be? The you know, the Air Force, for example, wants to have you know air superiority capability. Wants to have deep strike penetration bombers. Um, you know, obviously wants to maintain its nuclear enterprise for deterrence. The Army, the same large, you know, major combat operations based on land. The Navy, you know, wants to you know return back rightly to sea control and. And, and the things that go, you know, anti-submarine warfare and, and things like that, that, that go with sea control, those are all well and good. And those are, are correct. But this ready for what question is, it's, it's not enough if you're actually just rebalancing or going back toward um, an imagined, you know, the, 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 your favorite imagined past, right? Uh, and, and there's a danger really in, in inside the Pentagon that they're going to re- read this sort of reordering of priorities or the reestablishment of great power competition is there's a real danger that that's going to into a direction that will not actually allow it to compete most effectively with these actors. You know, I think, uh, I think you make a good point and this ties into what you said earlier, I think about the character of the threats that we face, right? How are we going to perceive the threat or the challenge of Russia and China. And I think too easily 
the services want to slip back into focusing solely on the big fight, right? I mean, I think they've got it right in terms of uh, refocusing our defense enterprise on strategic competition against these great powers. That makes sense to me. What makes less sense to me is focusing uh, too greatly or too much uh, at the expense of other things on on the big fight. Like in, in the context I'm most familiar with, Europe and the Russians, you know, the, I'm concerned that we'll conceptualize competition with the Russians only in terms of or primarily in terms of an armor battle, a tank fight in the plains of Central Europe. And I think that misses a heck of a lot of the competition. You know, Nate, you've written a lot about this in terms of the asymmetric fight. And uh, and I think that's where I'm worried we're not going to see enough emphasis. Uh, Chris, let me turn to you, though, and ask you, where, where do you see uh, this new NDS perhaps missing the mark? Let's turn more to the, the critique now and, and maybe ask you to put your uh, your regional expertise hat on as well. Yeah, well, a couple of things just to, you know, spin off the terrorism, even though while I think it's a good move to de-emphasize a focus on it, I think what the national defense strategy and the national security strategy, for that matter, don't do is so they don't define what winning looks like, right? I mean, that and that's a huge shortfall because it's something we've never really come to grips with. And if we can't come to grips with what winning looks like against uh, terrorist groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, um, then we're going to keep fighting this fight, which we've been doing for the past 16 or 17 years. So that, I think, is something I would have liked to see mentioned. The other huge gap and it, it's true of most public strategies, is there's a yawning gap between the objectives, the goals, the aspirations, and the resources that we're willing to put into that. And I mean, I think that's the, if there's a common criticism of the national defense strategy um, among a lot of the um, policy wonks, Christine Wormuth, Corey Shockey, Andrew Cordesman, it's that, you know, they haven't adequately made the case for how we're going to bump up the resources in order to do that. And we've, you know, seen this uh, from the Obama administration in terms of trying to de-emphasize their fight against terrorism. They've been unable to turn their attention away from the Middle East, and all they've done is ramp up you know, they had multiple surges in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria. And I think we see the Trump administration doing exactly that. So at the same time, they're making this case for a focus on Russia and China, which I think is is an arguably, you know, a good move. Um, how are we going to withdraw or actually disengage from the Middle East when terrorism is a continuing issue? And that's that's a dilemma. I think this strategy doesn't resolve. You know, I've read the same. I read some critique by Kath Hicks at, at CSIS, uh, where she was saying much the same about the lack of ways and means outlined in this in this strategy. Uh, Nate, you want to chime in on that? What do you? What's your sense? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually going to take some a little bit of issue to tell you the truth with Chris. I mean, I think that actually the concept of winning is is uh, is probably overemphasized. Um, in some respects in this strategy. I mean, I would actually say, and it kind of relates to this idea of lethality. I, I would say, look, I mean, are you, are you trying to be, you know, in a contemporary environment, given all the challenges, it doesn't matter whether it's the Russians, the Chinese or terrorists in the Middle East. I mean, are you actually trying to be more lethal and have some kind of definitive end with them? Or are you trying to be uh, more disruptive, more, you know, take a more management approach to the challenge and actually channel uh, the challenge in a way 
that's that's less fundamentally threatening to you. I mean, I don't think I have always thought and I continue to think that, you know, creativity is absent from from, you know, sort of the bureaucratic consideration of strategy. And as a result of that, we continue to kind of repeat the same words and 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 think that in many cases, these things kind of definitive end. I mean, I would offer on the strategy challenge for, I mean, uh, on the terrorism challenge, for example, again, because of the fact that we've dealt with it for 40 years and it's been a part of U.S. foreign policy for 40 years, uh, it indicates to me that it's a management challenge and it's not a challenge that's going to have some kind of definitive end. And so as a result of that, we have to be honest with the American people about it and we have to sort of move out and treat it that way and not necessarily treat it as a, or I mean, not necessarily treated as such an overarching and primary threat that it's it becomes a resource drain and it becomes an astrategic distraction for the Pentagon. You know, I, th- I think theoretically it makes sense to approach this purely in terms of competition, right, without necessarily uh, a big a big victory, right? There's not going to be any kind of uh, ticker tape parade at the end of this competition with the Russians, Chinese. We simply roll over into a perhaps an, a, a new phase or a new part of the competition, a new context, maybe a different functional area or a different domain. The problem with that is, though, it's tough to sell that to the American people and their representatives, right, in terms of resourcing it, uh, in terms of, uh, of achieving the political success, right, uh, that all of our political leaders are after. So I'm not sure we can square this. Chris, what do you think? You know, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, we're all saying the same things in a little bit different ways. I mean, when I talk about kind of defining winning, I'd agree. I mean, I think we've got to define expectations down, particularly in terms of terrorism, but even winning. Yeah. I mean, th- this isn't strictly a military confrontation, and, uh, and the NDS is, is understandably going to focus on the defense and military uh, piece of things. But it at least does acknowledge that, hey, we, we now are in a full spectrum competition. It it pays at least that lip service to it. And I would hope that the classified version of the strategy actually digs a little bit deeper and makes some of the tough strategic choices that are going to be required. Hey, Chris, speaking of lip service, I I can't let this conversation go without mentioning, you know, one of the critiques, of course, of this strategy is one of the central lines of efforts is strengthening alliances and partnerships. And the administration in its policies over the last year has taken some steps that some believe have done the exact opposite. And so I think one of the challenges we're going to see is how does the administration, uh, how do they make good on what may be a, a proper, a correct trajectory strategy way ahead when some of the policies being implemented, whether it's uh, a lack of support for Article 5 out of the gates early or for the, the first half of 2017, or the abandonment of uh, free trade agreements with our closest allies and partners. I think we can all agree, the three of us at least agree, that a lot of the words are right in this document. Now the question is, can they get the policies right uh, to back them up effectively? Nate, you wanted to jump in on something Chris said too. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say a couple of things that are pretty, uh, what I would say, pretty, um, you know, impolitic in the contemporary sort of, um, you know, strategic dialogue. But the bottom line is, is we have fundamentally lost strategic initiative vis-a-vis the Russians and the Chinese. I mean, it is, I don't, I, I think it's without question. You can, you can argue to what degree we've lost the strategic initiative um, with respect to them, but, but we have lost the initiative and, and what that's going to require in a lot of ways. And I'm using, you know, 
I'm using this word in air quotes. We are we are going to have to uh, aggressively um, fight our way back into the Pacific. And and what I mean by that is we are going to have to have a significant and dramatic public reentry into the Pacific, which includes an overt public commitment to our allies, uh, a change in our military posture, and a change in the conceptual way that we approach, especially the Chinese challenge in a more aggressive sort of campaign of strategic maneuver against the Chinese uh, to make sure that we, uh, to make sure that we um, uh, um, communicate to them that we mean business and that we do not, that we do, that, that we are not going to be dislodged from the Pacific is, is the most dominant actor um, and the most dominant arbiter of outcomes. And I'd say the same thing with respect to the Russians in Europe. And I would also say, and that sounds very aggressive, that is going to have to occur across a number of domains, most of which are not the most of which are not the military domain, and most of which are not going to involve fighting. Um, but unless we do that, we're we're we are in grave danger of actually relinquishing our position in the two most important strategic regions to the United States. Well, ominous, but a good way to summarize your thoughts, Chris. Any final thoughts from you on this? I mean, I do want to talk. You know, particularly since we've focused on the Middle East, I mean, with a decreasing emphasis on terrorism, the other focus for the Middle East is going to be on containing, deterring, and actually rolling back Iranian influence. In many ways, I think that's right, because they're the primary military threat to U.S. interests in the region. Um, I would say, though, I think it's also overstated in both the national security strategy and NDS in terms of Iran as being the primary source of instability in the Middle East. I mean, it's worth remembering that the Arab uprisings, Iran had nothing to do with what happened in Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, Libya, Syria. They had nothing to do with that. They're not the cause of that instability, although they're certainly seeking to take advantage of it. So I think that's worth considering in terms of perspective. Can I add one quick thing, John? Sure, one, sure. One quick thing. Look, there's a I, this, there's an analogy that came to me today when I was doing some work. I mean, the bottom line is, is we tend to treat our adversaries or our rivals as 10 feet tall in the bureaucratic debate so that we get more resources, etc. The problem with the Chinese and the Russians are not that they're 10 feet tall. It's they're actually... Uh, t- they're actually 10 feet wide and 10 feet deep, right? I mean, the, 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 they, they cause us a very broad and comprehensive challenge. They do not cause us a sort of singular giant military challenge. And from that perspective, we're going to have to have a very different approach to both of them. Well, Nate Fryer, Chris Boland, both research professors of national security studies at the Strategic Studies Institute. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate uh, your sharing your insights. Thank you. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.